Hi, I'm Jason Chung, head of the esports practice at Zuber Lawler. And I'm Philip Milestone, counsel at Zuber Lawler. Zuber Lawler is a law firm, and like any good lawyer, we have a big disclaimer for you. We are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. Until you pay us. So everything here is for entertainment purposes only. Again, until you pay us. This podcast is brought to you by virtualtimes.com. Virtualtimes.com, your news from the metaverse. Hello, this week, Metasapiens, we're back to delve deeper into talking about value. Mula, sheesh. Uh, put simply, how do we agree on what something is worth? Joining us on the video cast today is Joe Brennan of Hulahan Capital. Fortunately for us, Joe's role as VP at Hulahan Capital involves working with crypto asset clients to identify, analyze, and solve unique valuation challenges. We'll actually be walking through a unique scenario today to discuss how we identify and value assets in the real world versus the virtual world. But first, Philip, how are you doing? Hello. Uh, Hello, Jason. What have you been up to? And uh, you know, how do you, what do you think about value? Uh, living life, living large. I'm back from East Denver last week, which was an exciting place to be. Um, I think next year, maybe we'll have to hand out something that will identify Metasapiens roaming the crowds. When we see each other, we're gonna need a secret handshake. I feel like there's a lot of time we have to put into this, but that was a fun conference. Uh, and certainly it was a place where a lot of people think that blockchain has a lot of value. A lot of people think that um, the metaverse has a lot of value. There was a huge pavilion there dedicated to metaverse and gaming. A lot of people think that artificial intelligence has a lot of value. A lot of people think that uh, privacy and zero knowledge um, related, not the same thing, have a lot of value. So it was a collection of people who think that, hmm, distributed ledger technologies and how it interfaces with the metaverse, among other things, all have extraordinary value. Uh, people there believe. And I think at the end of the day, right, belief is a lot of what goes into value, right? And I, I know you gold standard folks out there, you're gonna yell at me and tell me that's a bunch of bullshit. And you know, maybe it is, but right now, our currency, at least the American dollar, is based on, on faith because people believe it has value. Um, whether it does or not is beyond this podcast at the moment. Um, and we are, there is nothing backing it up except for the full faith and credit for the federal government. And that belief is sort of what gives the thing value. Now, economists, of course, will argue with me. They say, no, you know, uh, money, for example, is money because it can store value, it's exchangeable, a few other definitions. But in our discussion with Joe, that we'll get to in a bit, he talks a lot about a couple of different ways that one can achieve evaluation. Which is, ah, I wonder if that's different than value. That might be angels dancing on the heads of pins. But it's a lot of it is, you know, A, you know, what the market will bear, B, sort of future earnings, you know, C, taking into account book values and whatnot, uh, and figuring out what a thing sort of is worth in a defensible way. And he talks about using standards. Um, he mentions, you know, for example, GAP as one of the ways to do that. For Metasapiens who aren't accountants like me or lawyers, um, GAAP is general, uh, generally accepted accounting principles, and they are a set of standards established by you know folks who play with numbers about how one goes about valuing things. They're not written in stone, but they're principles that we use to arrive at the valuation of the thing. And in the conversation we hear, uh, Joe talks about how one applies that to goods, both physical and digital. So mm -hmm. I think that value is. All of this, I still think it comes down to belief, right? Whether you believe in the principles or you believe in the thing, um, we have these substances, be it dollars, be it gold, be it oil, be it cryptocurrencies, um, be it intellectual property, be it real property that we all think has value. Sometimes it's based on utility, sometimes it's based on beauty, but either way, it's all just a function of us having the same shared belief. I think Jason, you've, called the met, uh, what is what was the met, met, metaverse to you but a, a shared delusion right that we all yeah. get to share in the same delusion i don't think that uh, value is different i mean at the end of the day i think we talked about it actually in the first episode of what we're talking about here right I, I, on the you know on what the meta the first thing that we talked about is the fact that 
hey, look, uh, everything that we do, society as a whole is based on the shared sort of belief that we have in each other, right? That that it, it's worthwhile to work together. And, you know, how we express that obviously has evolved, right? It used to be barter system and things like that, right? Like a farmer would would uh, would would exchange goods with the butcher uh, for different things that they need. But obviously we can't keep doing that, right? So we invented money, right? And as you said, that is backed by somebody, right? And here in the United States, it's it's backed full faith and credit by the U.S. government. Uh, and we believe in that. And that's the, uh, you know, and people have tried to create all kinds of alternative money schemes, company scripts. Uh, people are creating all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, you know, sovereign citizens who we won't get into have been trying to create their own own forms of, you know, uh, taxation and, and and money and all that kind of stuff as well. But all of these don't really hold any water until we all believe in it, right? There's a reason why, uh, you know, the Zimbabwean uh, dollar uh, keeps, uh, you know, going into hyperinflation because people don't have faith that they're going to be able to collect on it, right? Um, at the end of the day, with digital currencies and, and you know, other goods, same thing, Right. As you're saying, it's do we believe in it? Uh, if we do, are there enough people that believe in it? Is there a means of exchange? Sure. And if there is, are there enough people participating in it? And you know, people. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they've been asking. Well, they've been asking both of us about it. You know, FTX and collapses of exchanges and all that kind of stuff. And all I have to say is that you know, the thing that I think we have said consistently is that it comes down to the governance of these things, right? At the end of the day, the people running this are people, right? You know, the underlying asset class of the things that we're talking about hasn't changed. It's really how we govern it. Um, you know, do we want to put it in on an exchange that is governed by people? How do we have faith in those people? Do we are they regulated? Are they not regulated? All of these things are coming to bear right now. But do we think fundamentally that these digital assets have value? Uh, do they have value because they're useful, right? In the sense that, you know, we can use it in the metaverse or not? Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's that's sort of the broader conversation we're having. And it's a it's an important point, right? That value is not some sort of libertarian exercise, right? It's not it's not in, it's not in the anarchist's toolbook. Um, value exists in context and governance. Yes. And you mentioned regulation right? both really matter. And I one thing that seems to be coming to the fore uh, and it happened between our conversation with Joe and today. And that is the federal government coming down on uh, on crypto banking, right? Um, a couple of really big players, you know, uh, Silvergate is among them, are having a lot of trouble uh, engaging in the business of banking if they have clients that are engaged in the world of crypto. And it's this odd situation where I feel like we see the, the lawful and the valuable begin to diverge. Um, I'm going to begin to talk out of my keister right now, but I, I wonder if in an ideal world it'd be a good idea if valuable and lawful uh, intertwined, right? Um, I can imagine, I mean, certainly there are goods that are highly valuable, but are completely illegal, right? Mm -hmm. Illicit drugs come to mind. Um, there are certain things that are lawful and perhaps um, shouldn't be, right? Because their value is, is negative. Uh, one, one could think that sort of the ability to externalize environmental costs, totally lawful. Um, and its value is, is, I guess, I mean, depending on how you look at it, huge. But I think long-term probably has a big negative value on the rest of us who want to, you know, live and breathe there. So right now, though, you know, when we're talking about digital assets, there's, there's a big problem because we have millions of people um, across the globe, you know, certainly um, a huge swath of this country, who believe digital assets have value. But there is a collection of regulators, uh, specifically in this country, although not only, who are trying to, I don't know, depending on who you ask, crush the industry. Uh, others just say regulate. Um, but it's, it's, a, right, it's, it's a tough moment right now because there, I, there doesn't seem to be a path forward, right? These things that a lot of people agree seem to have value. And they're not inherently awful, right? We're not talking about sort of, I don't know, uh, Again, illicit drugs or, or, or pictures of abuse of, of mammals that can't consent, like those things are, you know, objectively terrible, granted. But uh, tokens, cryptocurrencies, you know, digital assets of any kind, I don't think are sort of inherently um, immoral or, or unlawful. Then they, a lot of people think they have value, but nonetheless, their exchange, right? One of the one of the pillars of of a thing having value, right? Its ability to be exchanged with others is being taken away. 
Um, mm -hmm. So I think that value, we need to talk about it in terms of context and regulation because in a well-regulated market, one hopes will support the value that people believe the thing has. And in the absence of regulation, those things don't stop having value. <laughs> they just sort of become more dangerous. And I, I wonder if the value that we're gonna be talking about in a little bit, they're not gonna follow sort of the principles that Joe's about to tell us about, but instead, you know, follow the principles that govern the trade and for example, cannabis, right? The law firm that we work with has a, has a vibrant practice in cannabis. You know, I, I'm a cannabis lawyer by all means. And, you know, when we were younger, this wasn't a thing. It was high value, you know, no doubt. When I was in high school, it was definitely a medium of exchange. Um, and it absolutely illegal. So I, that this this matters. I think that is an important point, right? The governance of the assets, the regulation of the assets play into the value of those assets, which sounds simplistic and like a truism, but when you're dealing with digital assets, it's sort of life and death for certain companies. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that's also really important to highlight here is that, you know, when things are starting out, especially when things people don't know what to do with something, you know, not having regulation can be useful, obviously, right? You know, you, you want to, you, you want mass adoption of something, right? And the absence of regulation can be helpful in that case, right? But we're talking about people's livelihoods now, as you mentioned, we're talking about actual assets that the retail consumer has now, uh, you know, not having guardrails on it and not having any sort of, uh, you know, clearly defined regime, we're finding the limits of it right now, right? Not to say that reg all regulation is inherently good or bad, but at the, at the same time, uncertainty is something that can kill an entire industry, it can kill an entire asset class. Uncertainty can can really also cause just problems all around, right? Yeah, there are reasons why uh, the regulation happens, and even in terms of flows of capital, right? People, I don't think most people think in terms of wholesale banking or, or things like that or international banking, but we have anti-money laundering, uh, know your client rules. Uh, you know, we have those kinds of things because sometimes you don't want certain actors getting that kind of money. We're seeing that obviously with, you know, uh, cases like Russia and all that kind of stuff as well, right? Um, there are, you know, tracking, you know, being able to track something doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're going to be inherently like killing something, right? Um, you, you sometimes having a, you know a, a, a regime to to sort of uh, you know understand the flows of capital and understand the asset and understand how things are actually cataloged and and whether they're genuine or not. And we'll talk about the value of genuine as well. Uh, but the thing is, like all of that can be useful, right? Because in the end, they also provide protections. And when you're talking about people participating in this kind of marketplace, you know, people who have already have tons of money, who have a lot of protections and who can actually go out and litigate and all that kind of stuff, they're more well protected than the retail consumer most of the time. Regulation, generally, generally speaking, tends to protect you know, everybody so we can all participate in the space for the most part. And obviously you can you can discount that and say, oh, that's just lawyer talk and all that stuff. Uh, you know, we should we should just go and you know start bartering, uh, you know, I don't know widgets uh, with each other again. And fair play to you, but I can tell you that it would it would mean that there's a lot of extraneous work that would need to happen to make sure that we all buy into that regime to make to see whether the, the transaction is valuable is is authorized, whether it makes sense, uh, whether the the value is actually verifiable because all of that is important. You know, there's a lot of work that would have to be done in the absence of regulation and, and a regime. And of course, digital assets are, are are different, right, Philip? Because there's a lot that can be done on chain, right? You don't have to go out and start start creating like ledger books and stuff like that and like writing things down in a in a in a book if you want to. I mean, a lot of this is automated, which is the exciting part, I think, but it's still a tool uh, that that's used, right, Philip? Or or they're different. Much. Yeah. No, the, the umbrella term is distributed ledger technology, right? That ledger mm -hmm. exists and it's distributed among many nodes. And that's that's the idea. That's that's what gives us the immutability and the transparency. And as for utility, no, <laughs> shameless plug. Check out our last episode with James, where we're talking about the proof protocol, right? I mean, this is something that is very useful. And you know, go to back, like you said, go to our first episode and, and we'll listen to Charles talking about how you know digital real estate it can be thought of in many different ways. So I, I'm, let's get to the interview because Joe does a good job of sort of speaking this in, intelligently in a way that sort of isn't you and me. Um, <laughs> and I think to, to answer your first question, yeah, is there value here? I think absolutely, right? Even if uh, you were to sort of grab an economist from any school, right? Be it, be it Chicago, Berkeley, you know, pick whatever your thought. I don't think anybody can deny that 
there's real value happening here. There are real exchanges happening. There's real value being, being created. Um, and, and with that type of exchangeability and, and transferability and store of value, there are scammers out there, right? And I think, yes, the important, the important point here is regulation is good, right? I'm, the, I'm a fan of clean water and lead-free paint, you know, just as much as anybody else. And these all matter because of regulation, right? The 40-hour work week, the fact that my children can't be pulled out of school to make, um, well, I suppose we've got a bit of a scandal in the United States about that at the moment. <laughs> but the idea is but that that's what regulation is, right? We need the rules and we need enforcement, but it has to be intelligent. And I think all of this goes into not only creating value, but protecting value. Uh, you know, a well-regulated market is a great thing. So, and, um, and just before we go to Joe, I'll, I'll just also, you know, talk about why it's important in terms of context of the metaverse. It's because the metaverse needs things in it. It also needs us to participate in it, right? And if we don't have a good system of value, of valuation, if we don't have a way to actually tra transfer things in and out, in and around, if we don't have a vibrant economy, um, people are just not going to go to that thing. Well, maybe people, well, let me take that back. Maybe you and I will go in for a laugh and we'll be able to talk to each other and that's great. But if we, if there's not enough stuff to populate that virtual world, nobody's going to participate in it, right? And what's the incentive for somebody, for companies to start investing in it other than, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's like, you know, ideations and stuff like that, right? Uh, if there isn't a well catalog system for doing all this kind of stuff, right? And that's the, the, the value here, right? Um, you know, we need to know not only how to create digital goods, I think that we've already done that, we've established as a society that we can do that. But then that, now we're getting to the nitty gritty of like, how do we put it out there? How do we actually access it? How do we transfer it? How do we actually agree to that these have value? What are the values? These are all very complex things that we're working out in real time. And I think Joe does an excellent job of walking us through that. So, you know, happy to throw it in the interview. Any last thoughts, Philip? Just that the rule of law matters. <laughs> a, a, a very light thought. I was going to toss that out there like it's nothing. But, you know, the, the, the belief, right? Not only that a thing has value, but that, the, that promises can be enforced. Uh, again, all of this goes to sort of a vibrant marketplace where people who don't have the resources of a Zuckerberg to protect themselves can feel comfortable transacting. And I think once that value is spread, democratized, um, then yes, right. Then we're talking about one hopes, you know, the metaverse and its access for all. We're talking about decentralization as a way to keep some of this value available. Um, and we're talking about Real assets, right? I, I think we need to get away the idea that digital assets aren't real. Um, and but that's and then I'll, I'll stop there. Sounds good. We are off to the interview. All right, welcome, uh, Metasapiens. We have a special guest today, and uh, you know, Philip. I thought, uh, you know, I think we've been dancing around the central issue for a number of weeks now. We've been talking about why the metaverse matters, how we can make it better, what we can do on it, but. Listen, we've been really not addressing uh, an elephant in the room, which is, do things have value, right? How do we value things in real life and especially on the metaverse? And today we have an expert to, to answer that question, uh, Joe Brennan of uh, Hulan Capital. Welcome. Uh, if you could tell the Metasapiens who you are and, and what you do, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so I, I work at Hulan Capital again in the valuation group. So we we value you know private companies um, you know in the crypto space, um, helping uh, asset managers you know value their portfolios. So we we deal with you know companies that are touching on uh, you know a range of things in crypto. Um, certainly one of the hot areas is uh, you know NFTs, metaverse type. Uh, and so we've been kind of looking at some companies along these lines for you know quite a few years now. Uh, personally, I, you know, I studied uh, finance and accounting at Marquette and fell down the crypto rabbit hole myself while I was uh, doing a finance job in uh, 2017. So been been stuck here ever since. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's it's an asset class that is always evolving. Um, you know, there are new new things to consider. Uh, you know. Uh, thinking about talking about NFT valuations or metaverse valuations, even two or three years ago on a podcast to me is it would have been funny. I would have laughed at you, uh, but here we are. So um, it's a, uh, it's a cool space. It moves fast and, you know, uh, it's just, I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, thank you very much for that, Joe, and uh, welcome uh, to the podcast. So uh, Philip, uh, you know, we, 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 we decided to do a little bit of a hypothetical, like you mentioned, Joe, uh, you know, uh, just an exercise. 
to really figure out, you know, how does everything fit together? How do things work? You know, what's the thought process you would go through? Uh, what sort of things that you would expect from lawyers to maybe help you out with uh, what you do? So, uh, Philip, I mean, uh, what, you know, we have a hypothetical. You want to introduce the case for, for the Metasapiens out there? No, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Jason and Joe. It's great to have you on. Um, so our hypothetical, I will point out, it's as perfect as we could make it, which means it's horribly imperfect, but it also goes along the, the lines of the physicist's solution to the farmer's egg problem. And that is that, you know, the physicist's solution only works with spherical chickens in a vacuum. So this hypothetical doesn't actually exist, right? We did our best to find something that would make for an interesting conversation. And what we came up with was the idea that this person, Satoshi Nakamoto, maybe you've heard of him, or them, I should say, had a storage unit somewhere in California, Simi Valley, we came up with for no other reason than that. I like saying that word. And this storage unit hasn't been paid for in too long. So according to Discovery Channel rules, uh, somebody bought it. These people want to remain anonymous. They've hired the, the three of us to figure out what the heck is in this unit and what it is worth, right? So here we are, crowbars in hand, cameras rolling. We open the thing up and lo and behold, you know, cobwebs and dust come rolling out. And there's a bunch of things in there. You know, number one, we've got uh, what appears to be a hitherto unknown Picasso, right? Uh, attached to it conveniently is a note from the world's most respected authenticator that says this is 100% real. We have two framed pictures of bored apes, ape one and ape two. There's a computer screen. Uh, there's a computer, I should say, in the unit, powered on miraculously. And we've got sort of a, a hard wallet on the desk and there's an Oculus on the desk, right? So starting out, you know, we walk in and we take a look at the computer screen and we see that it's open to a few different things. Number one, a Coindesk account, a Binance account, and a, a MetaMask wallet, right? And in there, in each of those, are, are one each of the following four tokens. There's one Bitcoin, there's one Ethereum, there's one library, and there's one Dogecoin. And the idea is, you know, what has our mysterious storage unit purchaser purchased? What is it worth that they have real world assets, right? They've got this Picasso. They have some real world assets insofar as the apes have been somehow framed and printed. Um, they have digital things, right? I mean, we, we picked Bitcoin, Ethereum, Library, and Doge specifically. Um, no offense to Doge, but that's our shitcoin. Library has been determined to be a security by the SEC, at least currently, whether they want to fight it or not. Ethereum is, I mean, a utility. We're just going to call it that because it does a lot. And Bitcoin, I think, is the only crypto that our good friend, Mr. Gensler, is uh, convinced is an asset. So given that, Let's walk in, and Joe, just for sort of some real-world bona fides, right? Let's say that there is a piece of fine art in the storage unit with a note of the authenticator attached to it. How does that get valued in, in your world, right? In Jason and my world, we can talk about custody and all this other stuff, but for you, how would you value that? Is that, just, is that a pure market analysis? Do you need more than the world's most famous authenticator? How do you start? Yeah, that's a good question, you know, and I'll, I'll probably preface all of this with, uh, with the fine art valuations. That's, that's a very, very niche um, world, right? Uh, it's, it's a process of looking at, uh, you know, market comparables, right? Uh, other Picasso paintings that have been recently sold. And that's a good analogy, to be honest, for, you know, even the digital aspect of these, these NFTs, right? Um, you know, a market approach is a very useful indication of value uh, on a recent date. And so, you know, I think you'd have to, to go to the very specific professionals of whether or not that, uh, you know, authentication is legitimate. Uh, you know, there are techniques to determine that, right? Um, you know, and then, and then you'd probably have to, to find a very, you know, a specific fine art uh, valuation professional that would be able to tell you the details on that. I mean, there, there, are, there are firms out there that do that. Hulahan is not one of them, but we, you know, they definitely take the approach of it. You know, there are methods to that madness. Um, it, it's very, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. Um, you know, the process, it can be, it can be determined whether or not this specific Picasso, right, based on, you know, almost, uh, if you think about it, NFTs have kind of taken, you know, much of that from the traditional art market. They've, they've taken uh, demand, they've taken the scarcity element of it, they've taken, uh, you know, hype in a way, uh, you know, Picasso and, and, and skill. Uh, you know, in, in talent, in, in uh, actually, um, you know, painting these paintings. So, um, you know, that, that uh, methodology has been determined, um, you know, it would be pretty simple to kind of go to a traditional evaluation specialist in that, that uh, niche 
and have them produce a report, right? And there are there are some steps that they would take. Um, you know, as far as kind of the the, the board ape frames, uh, I mean that that is less uh, important uh, or less to, to society, if you will, in terms of um, you know the the painting, uh, the actual physical uh, painting of it um, or picture frame. And so you know you wouldn't be able to uh, produce that or re, you know sell that on an open market for nearly the same amount uh, of dollars, right? That, that as the Picasso one. And so I wouldn't uh, you know you wouldn't need to necessarily go to in my opinion to a, a professional for those um, those are likely uh, physical representations of their digital counterparts and I'm, I'm sure we can get into kind of the details there yes we can with our perfect hypothetical um you said something though sell it on the open market and i'll ask what i hope i think is a third grade question in terms of valuing things is the question you're answering what could you sell this for or is the question you're answering what is this worth when someone says, you know, here's this thing, Joe, to help, right? I don't know if those right. questions are different. In my head, they are. Um, but I want to know right. sort of from, the, from your perspective, from valuation perspective, how do you answer those two questions? What can I sell it for? And what is it worth? Right. Uh, you're looking for what a willing, you know, buyer and seller are willing to transact at a, at a specific price, right? And so that's kind of the, you know, in the, in the definition of the standards of their value. Um, you're looking at what, what these two, you know, uh, non- related parties are willing to pay for a given asset or exchange for a given liability. And so that kind of concept in and of itself is a little bit different than what you might think of, you know, your intrinsic value, um, where you might kind of try and, and come up with a valuation that um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, if you're uh, an asset manager, uh, you might have a hunch on a given uh, asset, for example, right? Uh, and you make a strategic bet uh, on that asset. Where you think the asset is going, uh, you know, to to come to fruition. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about gap, when we're talking about, you know, uh, regulated kind of entities and the, the valuation of their their audited financial statements, for example, that that needs to to face the standard of of what is a willing you know participant in a market uh, to transact at. And so that that price in and of itself, uh, it's a point in time estimate, right? So there's a difference kind of where you know you're you're trying to project what value can become. In a way, uh, versus you know looking historically, what was the value on a given valuation date? And you always have the benefit of hindsight. That's you know an easy part, I guess, of, of our job too. It, it can be where um, you know you're, you're talking about what is the value of something on a given date. We have the benefit of of looking back historically, a month or two, or whenever we're looking. And so, what were people paying for that asset on that date? Uh, and, and what, you know, hindered their ability to pay that or why would they be paying a certain price that might not be um, in the, or that might be different from what's being traded actively, for example, Th those those types of considerations. But there are things you can point to uh, that, that help that process um, where it, it really at the end of the day, you know, if you if you like a, a given painting, you know, you might pay more than someone else. Uh, that doesn't mean that that would, you know, cross the. Um, you know, the, the requirements of, of what the fair value standards would say uh, for that, you know, investment or for that, that picture frame, for example. So, um, you know, that there is a level of, of, you know, understanding that it is kind of a consensus view um, where, you know, we can kind of get into that in a sense where, you know, the value of something really is what people decide it to be. Um, you know, that's, that's the age old question of, uh, of the dollar, right? The dollar is what we say it is because it is the dollar. Um, you know, you have Bitcoin there as well, and that in that camp, it can can be kind of taken uh, that way. Um, but value in and of itself, you know, uh, as far as when you're getting strict to audited financial statements for you know regulated entities, you need to pass that 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 kind of more strict standard, uh, and it's it, it's designed to be uniform, right? To be standardized so that you know people users of financial statements they can they can understand that this value standard. Uh, is, is transparent and and it's you know it's standard across all of the entities they're reviewing. Okay, so understanding that there is there are these standards, these practices that sort of you and people like you can engage to get to a price that other people will look at and say, okay, that valuation accords with the process by which we arrive at what we call fair value. So we're going to call it that. That's legit. No one's going to get sued for it <laughs> today. <laughs> So right. um, I guess so moving on then, right? That's we've got that sort of the Picasso and the ape. There's sort of established markets. 
um, the re then we sort of walk out to, over to our hypothetical computer terminal and we see these different screens are open, right? And I did this on purpose. I had sort of Coindesk up as an American-based custodial exchange where, you know, in this account is a Bitcoin and ETH, a library and a Doge, right? Um, I don't know if all those are available on Coindesk. I don't know if library still is, but in any case, let's just, just assume so. And the reason I did that is people listening to this podcast probably understand that Coindesk is built um, as a centralized custodial exchange, right? When you buy and sell a Bitcoin on Coinbase, you're not actually buying and selling a Bitcoin, right? What you're doing is their little ledger in their computers, wherever they have them, are sort of moving one Bitcoin from somewhere in their ledgers to another, right? You hold sort of the face of your account, but not the actual Bitcoin. That's not an on-chain transaction. I also have Binance up here. And I had sort of the non-US Binance. We're doing this through a VPN because Binance is, of course, bifurcated. There's an American arm. Um, but I want this to be sort of the, the non-American arm, right? Where someone is holding these coins outside of the United States. How does that affect value, right? Because a lot of our folks will have heard of FTX, I'm sure. Who hasn't? Um, FTX is in the Bahamas, right? This was not an American-based situation. Getting SBF in the United States was a matter of extradition, which we can talk about if anybody's very excited about it. But Either way, it would seem that sort of different custodians have different rules. Coindesk, American-based, how does it impact value? Finance, non-American-based, how does it impact value? And then I have this idea where we've got sort of a hard wallet, right? There's an actual, you know, hard wallet sitting on the desk, and within it is an actual Bitcoin, right? An actual ETH, where it is the case that that transaction was at some point recorded on chain. That exists in there. You plug it in, you know, and you can sort of see what's there. That's uh, the, the custodial asset. So let's just start at the beginning, right? If I have a Bitcoin, one of them is in a Coinbase, US-based custodial account. One of them is in Binance, a non-US-based custodial account. And one of them is in a hard wallet. Are each of those Bitcoin worth the same? Yeah, so according to, you know, kind of the fair standards or the fair value standards, they, they, they would be, uh, you know, uh, there, there are different risks involved, right? So that, that is really where it comes down to is counterparty risk. Uh, you know, on the uh, on the benefit or, or you know dealing the asset manager, whoever's holding those, those those Bitcoin, have to you know accept that risk and understand how it affects their portfolio. Uh, you have that in traditional finance as well. You know, any counterparty you're working with on, on any asset exchange, any any equity, etc., um, you have to incorporate you know the counterparty risk into that transaction. Uh, and so. Yes, you know, crypto has historically, and it's evolved a little bit, right, which is uh, sometimes surprising for people to hear. But you know, there there were exchanges back you know in the day where um, you know you just sign up with a with a fake email and and you'd send you know uh, you could send Bitcoin or, or anything there, and it was you know you had no idea where it was. Um, you know, so there's no um, you know jurisdiction. You know, I'd be curious to kind of hear your your thoughts on how on how this space has evolved, really. Uh, but but there were there were no no ability to, you know, no customer call center. You can't really, something happens, you know, you're, you're, you're screwed. Uh, and so, yes, there is an element in, I think your own, um, you know, model that you have to incorporate of counterparty risk, you know, is this, and, and right now we're seeing it in the industry. Many people did not, you know, have FTX as a high counterparty risk. And that was clearly a mistake. They uh, they were uh, a counterparty that was very risky at the end of the day when when we all found out what happened. So um, it's it's reevaluating those situations, and I think you know personally that that kind of push down the road. It, well, in the short term, it's painful. You know, we're going through um, you know potentially some some uh, clamping down uh, regulatory uh, wise in the United States, um, and and probably for for good reason, but. Uh, you know, a decentralized kind of future uh, can potentially take some of those choke points out uh, of the system uh, where, um, you know, we're moving to process where we aren't, you know, uh, strung up by uh, single or individual points of failure. And so, um, yeah, I, the, the valuation uh, from, you know, for example, if you're uh, a, an investment manager or you're a fund and you hold Bitcoin, um, you know, and it's technically in the United States at Coinbase or it's in Binance overseas, you know, from the financial statement perspective, you're still seeing one Bitcoin is whatever the price was as of that date. Um, you know, now there, there are certain disclosures that kind of are, are required and encouraged in those financial statements to, you know, indicate, um, you know, things like that, right? We have this counterparty or 
um, you know, this is the risk that we're taking, et cetera. But uh, from a strictly valuation perspective, you know, you're looking at kind of where it is um, trading, you know, the price of that. There is this concept, again, of principal, uh, principal markets where, um, you know, if you do have access to this market, um, you know, and you're trading it, trading that Bitcoin on that market, use that, that price, right? Bitcoin isn't uh, the best example for that because it's, you know, it's so, the spreads are so tight. The prices generally, for the most part, um, you know, are very similar uh, from, from one exchange to another, you know, uh, with some, some, you know, minor exceptions. But um, yeah, I, the, the price itself, the value um, isn't kind of explained away in just, just whether or not you're, you're holding it at Coinbase versus Binance, I would say. Huh. From a, I will, you know, analyze my own hypothetical and say that from Please. a legal perspective, I think, it's, I think it does matter a lot. Right. If someone came to me yeah. with these three options, they're like, and they would ask me a different question, something more along the lines of what would it cost me to sort of collect, get, to obtain, right? Then the, I mean, the hard wallet is the, by far the best choice, right? You have it. I mean, assuming you can get into the thing, right? If it's password protected and you're screwed, you're screwed, then it's just a brick. But if you actually have access to it, like that's the best, right? Second best is Coindesk, um, at least if, I had, if my client was an American. Because at that point, you know, I can go to an American presence and use the American judicial system like a hammer, yeah. right? Even if I never get that Bitcoin, I've got American assets subject to the American rule of law. Now, I'm sure that's the case, you know, in any, any country, any lawyer would say that, right? Pick local wherever you are. That's what you can get. I would say that the, the, the non-US based custodial exchange would be the most difficult because, and the most expensive, because quite honestly, you're talking to me already. I can't do it wherever Binance happens to be, you know, and then you'd have to sort of locate it and find local lawyers and go through mm -hmm. a whole process to be several processes, right? Mm -hmm. So even if I have a Bitcoin in these three buckets, right, they have clearly different values just in terms of the legal cost necessary to get access to it. So, right. so that from from that perspective, there is, I think, a vast difference in the value because the the net value post legal cost is different in each case. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. And I think some of that potentially, and, and this would be your realm too, would be covered in those LP agreements, you know, uh, and, and the agreements between the investor and, and a given fund, for example, they, you know, they, they have to follow certain custody guidelines or certain custody rules um, according to whatever their charter documents are, right? And so there would be maybe some recourse there in the event that something happened or the, or the Bitcoin was stolen, or if, you know, they, they did leave it on FTX and they weren't supposed to, right? There's maybe some uh, some some recourse there for investors, but I you know from a net net perspective, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think you're wrong. I think there is you know an element of risk involved there that is kind of underlying and uh, might not be as um, you know explicit in a in a given price. You know, one of the things that you mentioned, Joe, was that you know obviously the value is the value, uh, right? And and in basically for you, it doesn't uh, really matter as long as you can express it uh, and it exists, right? But uh, at what point does the counterparty sort of risk start affecting that, right? Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, when I was working in a in a previous life at a financial institution, yes, the value is on paper the same, but whether you want to do that deal, uh, whether you're looking at that counterparty and saying, "Oh, this is a little bit of a, a of a of a riskier sort of jurisdiction to do a, a a major loan in," for instance, that kind of stuff. At what point do you actually flag to your partners, "Hey, maybe"? Uh, maybe it's time to put it in a hardware wallet, or maybe it's it's time to, you know, think about alternative uh, places where we can be holding our investments. Yeah, I think that needs to be for any good investment manager or asset manager that needs to be done first and foremost. You know, I think that for the best ones, that that due diligence has been done long ago, uh, and and it it affects you know how it's why we're seeing you know kind of a slow roll process of these more traditional asset managers, right, um, where they needed you know, the infrastructure and, and it's still ongoing, you know, they, they, there's big names who won't touch this space still because of the, you know, the, the rails really aren't there yet, uh, the checks and balances. And so they have to do their due diligence, their significant due diligence for them to get comfortable with risking as much money as they could, uh, you know, on the line. And so um, that's why it, it, it is this process. It's taken as long as it has and will take, you know, even longer uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, there are real risks involved there. Um, and you have to, you have to incorporate those, um, from the get go. Um, and if, you know, if you find that, um, and that's why there was first mover advantage, right. To some who were willing to be more risky and take, you know, take, take some risks involved and say, you know, we're willing to potentially lose this portion of our, of our assets on this exchange, but we can't get access to X asset without being on this exchange. Right. Um, and so there is some, 
uh, you know, some alpha included included in that. Um, but but I think you know the 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 value of it ultimately at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it's done up front. That due diligence is done up front, and and it does affect it. I would say almost immediately. Um, you know, if they're if they're noticing something shady that happens, you know, that changes the risk profile. I think that that ultimately requires them to um, reassess. Um, but I would think that they've done that due diligence ahead of time so that it shouldn't, you know, that the risk should be minimized to an extent where they're comfortable operating at that exchange or with that counterparty, uh, unless something materially, you know, material changes. As you analyze these digital assets, what's the level of granularity that you use, right? I'm going to, we're 29 minutes into our hypothetical and I'm about to deviate from it. Hey. Based on what you just said, um, because let's let's just assume we have a bunch of different layer ones, right? I mean, you've got let's say you've got Solana and Near and Polygon, right? All it's just di- different ways of doing the similar thing, right? Different structures, different methods of accomplishing their 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 given task. Do you see them all as layer ones and you value them that way, or do you say, you know what, like Near's, you know, really tech heavy, and Polygon, you know, I love their idea of the subnets, and you know, Solana. They're doing their thing. And do you get into that level of granularity when you're valuing a, a certain, I guess we're still in the realm of cryptocurrency. We haven't quite gotten sure. beyond that yet. I mean, you, you absolutely can. I think the, the challenge there is getting you know, too esoteric and too unique um, can cause issues as well, right? Because there are, um, you, know, you know, then you get into this concept of, well, the, the total addressable market is, you know, six trillion. And so, mm-hmm. you know, of this specific, because they do this, 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 and this, and this, and adding it all together, um, you know, you have to find a way to, again, this kind of takes a step back of how does everybody collectively view this, this specific asset class? And, and within that asset class, how do these, you know, differ from others? And so, you know, one, one connecting layer, we try to, you know, a lot of this uh, valuation in this asset class is relative, relative valuation, right? It's a market approach using what, what others are considering a certain value to be for one asset that is similar enough to another. And so, um, you know, I would first look at those as all, you know, L1s for sure. Um, and they're all trying to solve uh, the same problem in slightly different ways, essentially, right? I mean, there are you know, I, I do believe in a, a multi-chain future, I think, right, where, where there are, you know, uh, blockchains that, uh, you know, public blockchains that solve very unique problems. Uh, and, and, you know, some solve them better than others. And they'll mm-hmm. create their niches, right? They'll, they'll go through that process. But at the end of the day, you know, there was the Ethereum to start and that, that kicked it off. And these other ones are trying to be uh, you know, a, a newer, faster version of that. And they're trying to find their own niche. And, and the way to do that is to come up with these, you know, uh, different markets, uh, different developers, uh, different, uh, you know, ways of providing, you know, being known or being recognized in the market. And so you can add certain premiums, you can add certain, you know, uh, things to these blockchains that you that you might believe are, additions or added, you know, added value. But at the end of the day, you're looking at this kind of asset class as a whole and, and within that a subsector. And so we see, you know, and you look at the performance, right? You look at the correlation to a lot of these things. Yes, you know, will we'll, uh, we'll a handful of them outperform, in my opinion, in the long run? You know, I, I believe so. I think that there are some certain, certain things in this asset class that still aren't, you know, known in terms of how value uh, a, Accretive is is it shows right how value accrues to these protocols is still an unknown concept in a way right how how over the long run um, will will uh, you know given uh, protocol Solana for example right will will they will enough people from traditional finance and and these markets become you know use their decks and and will will that really at the end of the day drive the value of Solana higher uh, mm-hmm. you know I don't know. Um, and, and, and it's still kind of an experiment in that sense. Um, but, but you can say that, okay, yes, um, Nier, for example, wants to build a DEX on it as well, right? It might be more privacy focused or the staking ability is, is higher, right? Um, but they're all, they're all variations. And so we're, we're going through this experiment, experimental process of what sticks, 
and what gets used. You know, the, the concept of network effect and and its and its view on uh, on this asset class is tremendous. Uh, is Bitcoin, you know, uh, by by far the best blockchain, uh, technologically speaking? Not at all, right? I mean, it's it's ancient. It's like yeah. uh, it's like it's a, the first iPhone, uh, and and now we're on iPhone. 14, right? Uh, but it's the biggest one and has been and maybe always will be uh, because it was the first. Ethereum is a similar concept, right? Um, so we'll see how these things play out. I, I do think that, you know, it's kind of like a power law in my mind. My, my visual map of the future is just we'll have maybe one that does a good chunk of it, maybe a majority, and then you'll have kind of your, your smaller, uh, you know, uh, smart contract platforms that, that, that gather up the niches that, that are very good at what they what they're trying to be uh, but that you know when you think about it that can still be you know collectively trillions of value uh, it's mm. just kind of how how that how that plays out it's, it's a long a, way to answer so hopefully uh, oh, no, yeah, it's hopefully, it's yeah. but it's it's a it's a nuanced answer and it's it's great because even as you talk I hear my head sort of splitting apart sort of two pieces of advice but they're they're sort of in regular jargon you know called value right the first is and I think everybody who's putting out these coins is going to hate me for this, but should I buy this, right? right. It's almost, right, do, what do I look at to see if this is the right bet for my money versus what you're doing, which is like, you have this, this is what it's worth right now. And they're very different. Yet part of me wants to say, well, no, like, you know, Ethereum must be radically more, you know, valuable than Doge, for example. Like, it's, it's a utility. It's, it's a real network. They actually do a thing, right? It's not just a meme. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, it's an L1 where Doge isn't. But either way, it's... It's still, it's, I mean, pardon me if I'm mishearing you, but a lot of it is still coming down to the idea of, you know, taking all of, not just all available data, all data that the standards tell me I should take into account. That's what I do. And then I'll arrive at a value. But a, a big chunk of that is the open market data. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think things with, with Ethereum too, right? With, with uh, the, the new EIP uh, that came out, you know, where you can kind of predict cash flow. Right. I'm traditional going back to traditional valuation. Uh, it feels so far removed from, from my, uh, my me doing it, but you know, you're, you're discounting future cash flows uh, at, to an extent, right? The reason why you can't necessarily do that with these protocols, right, for the most part, uh, is that it, it's difficult to a predict future cash flows in this asset class, and b a lot of times they don't have any. Now that that has kind of changed, I would say for sure in the last couple of years here with with uh, the emergence of DeFi. And, you know, the predictability in, you know, uh, Uniswap, right, for example, turning on the switch, right, and, and seeing how much um, actual value can, can accrue to the token holders, right, this concept of liquidity provisions, um, you know, and, and earning actual protocols, earning actual money. I mean, there are, there are ways to go about, and that's, I think, what, what is, we're seeing a little bit more of an influx of, uh, again, this is the the goal, and, and what I'm we're all continuing to try to do is to pull traditional valuation techniques into this new asset class, right? And so that's where uh, you know uh, TradFi guys and girls like understand um, you know some of the DeFi uh, cash flow perspectives and analyses. It just makes sense. So you can look at that. I, I think that you know my reservation with with some of those models is that you, some of the assumptions that are are being made are very difficult to support, um, and so it's it's a it's a process of you know uh, taking a step back. You know where do you see everything kind of coming together? You know um, will regulation allow these things to kind of you know, proliferate? Will um, you know the adoption curve continue uh, on its you know toward descent? Will um, you know people actually want to you know walk around with uh, apes as their uh, profile pictures, you know, and, and, and show the status forever. Um, maybe, you know, and that, that's, that's kind of where you have to place your bet. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there are uh, elements to that, that, uh, that are, you know, an analysis you have to make on your own. And um, all of the things, you know, coming together from a relative value perspective is a good way to view things where you are at a, a given point in time. Um, you know, to, to make sure you're not, you know, you're not getting uh, ahead of yourselves. And, and you know, you, you can kind of see it's a very cyclical industry, right? And as you guys know, I mean, it, it ebbs and flows. Um, so, it's, so it's good to just kind of know where, you know, uh, where you are in the, in the cycle, if you will. You know, a, a final piece for me, Joe, is just like it, it, when it comes to the metaverse, you know, because all of these things that we're talking about, 
you know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, uh, not theoretical, but at, at the same time, conceptual, right? Like you have these things and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when you're talking about NFTs, you know, we started with the Picasso example and the, the board apes, but how much is expression, you know, in say the metaverse, how much can it add to the value of an actual underlying asset or not? So for instance, if I had a board ape, but it was expressed in Decentraland, right? And it was done in a, in front of a beautiful tableau that somebody else owns, like, does that expression of that asset actually change anything? Or, or is it just, or is the asset the asset, and and, and you know the context doesn't matter as much uh, in this case? Yeah, I guess maybe to clarify, you're kind of asking whether or not the board, a board ape like uh, twelve twenty, right, is being yeah. portrayed as kind of a statue in the metaverse, and so that would sure. potentially yeah. make that board ape more valuable in in a yeah. way, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think artwork in general, right, provides that uh, human emotion um, from from us as as a species, really, and uh, and that will provoke uh, people to attribute more value in, in a way. Um, it just depends, I think, a lot on on the adoption, right? You know, uh, at the end of the day, if no one is using that, or if no one is going to that to Decentraland to visit that that piece of artwork, you know, if no one went to Rome. Uh, you know, maybe maybe people wouldn't care that much about the history, right? Um, I, I think there is an element of there, which is why you know the, this this asset class in general ha- does have it feels like it has so much speculation, because you know there is an element of speculation, but but the speculation encourages you know folks to be, become entrepreneurs. It encourages them to to build more things. It encourages them to add value uh, to certain. Uh, projects to certain, you know, metaverses, right? To to continue that, it's almost a self fulfilling prophecy at times. And so, yeah, I think art art in general will will always have value in in our minds. It's just what we what we determine uh, the, the 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 artwork to be and uh, the most valuable, right? And I think as as we move more digital, right? I mean, I think this podcast is very on on brand with with the the concept of of you know spending all of our time. Uh, you know, on our phones, right, in, in the digital realm, um, you know, it, it seems like a natural progression, uh, you know, at the end of the day, maybe it's, um, you know, one that some are afraid of or, or worried of, right, but um, at the end of the day, right, there's there's this element where we want to be connected, and it's a very easy way to be connected in a very cool, you know, landscape, and and it's, it's cool to kind of, you know, consider. Which takes us, I mean, back to the thing that maybe we haven't been talking about, and that's sort of the value of Coinbase. Right, and that is both sort of TradFi and it's not DeFi, but sort of NuFi, right? Where mm-hmm. Coinbase, a publicly traded company, Kraken just got hit by the SEC. Well, they agreed to forego a product they were offering. They're still around, of course. Um, and it makes me wonder, right? When you are valuing, if I could, you know, ask you, uh, Berkshire Hathaway versus Coinbase, right? Mm-hmm. Very different companies, I'm sure. But just insofar as one touches this crypto world, do you think that the way that they're being valued in the market is right now, the, the way it should be done? And that might be too big of a question or the wrong question to ask you. Let's say that, you know, in, you know, Mr. Nakamoto's uh, or um, Ms. Nakamoto, who, Satoshi's storage unit, there were, you know, miraculously a Berkshire Hathaway certificate and, a, you know, a Coinbase, right? Mm-hmm. Um, would their value just be what it's trading for at the moment and everything else is baked in? Or do you say, you know, Berkshire, they're going to be fine. The SEC, we have no idea what the SEC is going to do with, with Coinbase. We certainly know they're probably going to leave Berkshire Hathaway alone. Do you take right. that into account or did you assume that's baked into the price? Well, markets are emotional, right? Markets are, are run by humans uh, at the end of the day. Well, maybe plenty of uh, algorithms uh, now, but um, at the end of the day, there are humans at the end of the end, uh, you know, coding those algorithms. And so, uh, you know, you, you, it depends on what you're looking at, right? Am I, am I uh, valuing a portfolio for an audit um, and determining what, uh, what the shareholders and, and, you know, the, the users of those financial statements are, are required and, and need to see. Uh, the value is then what, you know, using a market approach, uh, which is a very common approach. Um, you know, you, you can point to what, what people were transacting for that, that security on that day and say that that was the value, right? That, that doesn't preclude you from coming up with your own uh, valuation estimate, right? Um, using different means. There are a couple, right? The income approach is one where we talked about briefly uh, using a discounted cash flow method or a capitalized cash flow method where you're estimating what the future cash flows are of that business mm-hmm. and you're discounting them to a present value. Um, you know, that that is where your own intrinsic valuation could differ from what you think the market is. You might think that the market is discounting 
uh, the future cash flows of Coinbase, right? The, the market sentiment uh, is uh, crypto's dead, right? Regulation is going to kill it. Uh, it's not coming back. No one's going to trade anymore. Uh, you know, so uh, Coinbase makes, uh, you know, a ton of their fees on, on transaction fees and, and they're not going to have any, right? So you can, you can look at that. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but you can see what, you know, the top analysts are projecting for their fees. Uh, and you can, you can say, and you can disagree with it, right? You can say, I disagree. I think that crypto will come back. We will experience another, you know, bull market cycle, at least one, uh, and, and there will be another frenzy and they will earn more money than analysts right now are giving them credit for. And so I'm going to edit that uh, and put it in my model and, and they'll spit back, you know, uh, a value that's different, right? Um, there are things now that are just kind of outside of uh, the control of, of valuing equities, right? That, you know, interest rates, right? For example, that's your base interest rate and that those that increasing, hence the, the, the moniker of, of risk assets and, and the value, uh, um, you know, the, the decrease in value there is just because the, the, the models themselves, the way that the, the discounted cash flow models work, you know, you have a, a rising risk free interest rate, the, uh, the value of that, uh, that inherent value is, is going down in those models. And so that's that, you know, a couple of things, a little bit of a side note, but I mean, I think, you know, it, it's risk profile, right? You're looking at a couple of things, high growth stocks, and, and you know, that's a different, uh, that's a different beast than a Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway, which is steady, you know, um, it, it's very um, straight line. It's, it's not going to do anything crazy, but you're not going to have your, your high growth potential. Uh, so, I, I think the the crypto stocks, if you will, definitely get lumped in a lot with with Bitcoin and and kind of the the crypto asset market, um, for better or for worse. Obviously, it, it's derived a lot on that, but uh, you know it's a real business. They have other other sources of revenue, um, yeah. and and there are um, you know benefits to being a shareholder in, in that sense uh, over potentially just holding spot spot crypto. Um, so there there are some different. Uh, categorizations, I think, that you can consider in some risk profiles. But, um, you know, it depends on what you're looking for. Uh, I think I think a, a growth growth stock, in my opinion, you know, maybe it's just my preference, but I'd, I'd rather have the, the excitability of a Coinbase than a Berkshire Hathaway. I don't know about you guys, maybe maybe a small portion. Um, but mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, it's really what you're what you're looking for. It's a measured answer. And I'll ask you yes. one more one more unfair question. Right. I hear you when you say you know, markets are run by humans. Maybe there's a lot of bots. Mm -hmm. um, in our profession, Jason, I go like this because John, my Zoom, Jason and I are on the same level. Jason and I, you know, are in this profession that for a long time, people thought would never be automated and then it began to be automated and it's becoming more and more automated, right? And right. Uh, certainly I think that there's a strong argument for sort of algorithmic lawyering. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I think there's an even better argument for augmented lawyering where we should sort of combine uh, sort of artificial intelligences with intelligences and go from there. Mm -hmm. um, given what you just said, I think I know what your answer is, but how much of the valuation of an asset is algorithmic and how much is an art? And I'll just sort of, I'll leave that sort of very open-ended and sort of probably end with that question. So by all means, like make this your, if you would, sure. your, your wrap up, but I, in your personal opinion, your professional opinion, like where, where do you stand on the replaceability index with an artificial sure. intelligence? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's definitely coming to, to affect all industries, right? Um, I, I, would, I would argue, of course, uh, I try to argue at least that it, that it is more of an art than a science. I mean, there's an element to understanding uh, nuances involved uh, with, with, you know, for example, talking to the company's management team and understanding, you know, what, why a given project, uh, product is doing better than another and what, what that means, you know, their, their projections and how that influences certain things, right? Uh, I don't know if that, I mean, maybe someday that level of detail could get kind of, you know, find itself uh, into, a, you know, a chat GPT or, or some kind of AI program. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the standards need to be uh, changed a little bit on how private, uh, private companies, you know, disclose information. Um, if we were to go that route, which is obviously it's all private, right? So that you, that you have an element of, of hiring uh, individual uh, firms to, to produce these reports for you that I think, um, you know, aren't, you know, a, a, an AI might not be able to do without, you know, information that, that is unavailable, right? So uh, I, I think there is, there is an element of, uh, of repeatability. There's certainly, you know, comparisons that you can look at. Uh, there are, you know, it's a market approach that you can use that, 
is generally straightforward. I, I tend to agree with you though, Philip. I mean, you know, an augmented approach where you, you know, you have a, an AI system that's doing a lot of the, uh, the dirty work, uh, pulling data, putting, putting charts together, comparing different, you know, public company comparables, right. To, to your subject company doing that, that research. Absolutely. I think eventually, you know, a lot of that stuff can get streamlined and, and probably will. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I firmly believe you need, you know, uh, someone to kind of come in a human, right. To, to view everything, to put all the pieces together, uh, to, to make sure that things make sense, uh, and, and understand, okay, this, this value in a sense, uh, it seems right. And this is, this is what, what makes sense to me based on all the things included here. And, uh, and it's not just kind of, you know, spit out uh, by, by something that is taking other sources of data and coming up with it. So, mm. so I'd like I to, I'd like to think there's still a hope for us humans here in, in my profession, <laughs> but we'll see, you know, I guess it's still early. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you, you and me both, man, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. This has been very enlightening. The, uh, it's, it's a world that sort of Jason and I dabble in, right? As attorneys, I think all attorneys do. And it's great to sort of get the inside look on how this process is undertaken. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. I know we went off a little off script here, but uh, it was a great conversation. So thanks for the time. Appreciate your time, Joe.